Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. R.G. Humble was a wonderful pastor, college administrator, and evangelist, traveling all across the United States and beyond in ministry for the King of Kings. This sermon was preached in 1990 at the Midwest Pilgrim Holiness Camp Meeting in Anderson, Indiana. It's a deep sermon that he titles, Forgiving Others. I know you'll enjoy this powerful message. in our fellowship with one another, with our fellow men? Are we right with our fellow men? Are the associations right? Are restitutions made? Are forgivenesses granted? And that night I preached on that subject and I was led to think, at least, a thought that I'm not sure but what it was correct then and has been correct and all along the line since that time and that is that everywhere to where I would travel, there would be a need for the rectifying and bringing together of human fellowships on a Christian holiness level. And I'm convinced that it is the highest level of Christian conduct and attitude to be right with one another to have all of our wrongs righted and forgivenesses granted. And no matter how much we testify or preach or sing or pray or whatever, if there are attitudes that are not corrected, then there is light walked over. And whatever we have done means very little, if anything. Brother Stroud, that some of you know, was telling me before he went to heaven about his little four-year-old grandson and his, his granddaughter. They'd had some kind of a skirmish. They'd had some kind of a fallout, some kind of a breakage of fellowship. The two were brother and sister. And, uh, and uh, the mother concluded that it was the little boy's fault rather than his sister's fault from what she had heard. So she went in and she took him by the hand and led him to a chair and, and uh, said, uh, young man, uh, you, you sit there, you sit there for 30 minutes. And uh, if at the end of the 30 minutes you're ready to go to your sister and say, I'm sorry for what I've done, you can get up. But otherwise you'll have to sit there longer. At the end of the half hour, the mother said, Now, young man, if you're ready, 
to say, I'm sorry, you may say it now. And with a scowl and a lowered eyebrows, he uh, said, I'm not sorry. And I'll be sitting here till Jesus comes. <laughs> His mother didn't think that was too funny. And so she said, young man, with an attitude like that, you can be sitting there after Jesus comes. Someone said, I love God all right, it's just people that I can't stand. And then God comes along and says, how can you love him you've never seen if you don't love those you have seen? Jesus talked about this subject often. One of the places he talked about it was in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, if you go to your place of prayer or you go to your spiritual exercise and in that, spiritual, that place of spiritual exercise you try to talk to me and there you remember, there you remember that your brother hath ought against you. Stop your praying. Leave everything intact there, but get up and go out or go there and be reconciled to your brother, be, rec be reconciled to your sister, be reconciled to your children, be reconciled to your parents, be reconciled, be reconciled. Get it worked out. Then come back. Jesus talked about it again on another side of the coin. That's when you were at fault, that first one in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember you've done something that has caused your brother to have ought against you. But on the other side of the coin, he said, Moreover, if thy brother hath ought against thee, or if, if thy brother sin against thee, if thy brother sin against thee, chapter 18, verse 15 of Matthew, if thy brother sin against thee, go to him. Again, you're the one that's supposed to initiate the action. And you go to him, you get it worked out. If it's possible to work it out, you get it worked out. You make every attempt to get it worked out. Every You leave no stone uncovered to get it worked out. Don't go with an agitated voice and don't go with an agitated attitude. Go forgiving. In fact, there follows in all the rest of that chapter a lesson about forgiveness, how to grant it. When Peter heard it, he said, how many times, how many times should I forgive? The ancients said two. The scribes said maybe three. Peter said seven. And Jesus said, till you stop counting, just go on and on and on. You see, Jesus knew that this is not just an action. It's the attitude of those that are sanctified. It's the highest state of grace. It's the highest standard of Christian holiness. It's human relationships. In fact, the matter is that Jesus talked about this in his prayer. 
And he put it at such high priority that he said the world doesn't know and the world can't believe until this is taken care of, until those that profess his name are all one. He prayed for their oneness, and he prayed for that because he said that the world may know. But the world can't know until it believes. And it can't believe until it sees love in action among the people that profess the name of the Lord. That's why we don't see the revivals like they used to talk about. It's because love is not in action. Some places we do see revivals like they talk about. It's where love is in action. And when they got to the upper room, they got this all worked out. Some of them wanted to have the chief seats before they got to the upper room. They even talked to the Lord about it. Some had their mother to talk to the Lord about it or wished that she would. Others didn't feel very good about them wanting to get the chief seats. And on and on it went. But when they got into that upper room, before they got sanctified, before they were spirit-filled, they got it all worked out. They got their restitutions made. The Bible says they did. It said they were all in one place and they were all of one accord. That means they got the restitutions made out. They were ready to live a sanctified life, though they didn't have the blessing yet, but they weren't soon, they weren't very long in getting it. The Holy Ghost came almost simultaneous with that. Now, in the first chapter, it said they got that one accordance to that unity. Jesus prayed for that unity. You see, restitutions can be made at any Christian level. A preacher this afternoon put that in the form of a question. said, how long, after he had illustrated somebody else that had made a restitution, said, how long, he pointed to us in the audience, he said, how long has it been since you made a restitution? You may have thought that he was out of place in saying that. Now, you may not have thought it consciously in a way, but you have, might have thought, well, I'm sanctified. Why would he ask me? He means everybody else. He doesn't mean me. No, I think he meant what he said. I think he asked all of us. You see, restitutions may come up anywhere along the line in any state of grace. You could be as good-intentioned as good intentions can be and intentioned that way. And you could mess up a situation because you're very fragile, you're very human. You could speak a word, you meant it, maybe you meant it for well, but it was taken the other way. And when you analyze what you said, maybe it wasn't said right in the beginning because you're very human. Now you need to make restitution for that. Sanctified folk can make restitution. They, they, can, make, they can make mistakes that necessitate restitu restitutions. There's not one person in this building tonight but what may need to make a restitution. And I'll tell you when you need to make it. Just as soon as you realize you're in error. And then on the other hand, when somebody makes a restitution, or even before they make it, like in the, in the 18th chapter, they've sinned against you. 
They haven't moved to make the restitution. Jesus says you're to forgive them. One district superintendent took issue with me on that. He said, no, you don't have to forgive them till they ask it. I only need to point him to Calvary if he, if he would understand. Jesus did. I mean, he had the spirit of forgiveness. Those that, were, those that had plucked his beard, those that had mocked him, spit on him. You think Jesus carried any grudges against them? He wouldn't be Jesus if, he'd, if he had carried any grudges. Do you think he can fix us up until we don't carry the grudges? That's why people ought to get hungry for the blessing. That's why they ought to get hungry to get sanctified. Very early in my ministry, I was led to pastor a church. I really wanted to go somewhere else. I thought it was too big of a church for me. And, uh, but the Lord worked it out in very unusual circumstances with me running the other direction that I went to pastor this church. It was a church that averaged about oh, 150 or 60, somewhere along in there. And I went to pastor that church, just 23 years of age. This church had a problem. It had been a great church. At one time, it had, it, it, had, it had been twice as big as that, with lots of fire and lots of glory and lots of revival and lots of great spirit, many a soul-winning church. But it had dropped down because there were divisions in the church to its present state, which was still uh, that average. But when I got there, it wasn't even up to their previous year's average, 126 the first Sunday, and the second Sunday had 125. The board asked me to preach the revival. I, uh, that fall, after being there about two months, I started in on a two-weeks meeting. I was 23. In the middle Sunday of a two-weeks revival, starting, including three Sundays, the Sunday it started, then two full weeks, meaning two more Sundays. In the middle week of that revival, middle Sunday, on Saturday, the Holy Ghost spoke to me about preaching on restitution and getting human relationships all worked out so that the work could go on. I called my wife into the study and said, Honey, are you ready to move? She said, We've only lived here two months. Why are we going to have to move? And I said, If I preach what God has given me here today, what I believe God has given me, if I preach that where I think, when I think he wants me to preach it tomorrow morning, I think we'll have to move. I'm pretty sure of it. She said in her quiet way, make sure God has given it to you, then preach it if it's God's, God's message, and we'll take things as they come afterwards and not worry about it. It's always been her way of action. Man, I ought to have made a lot more progress than I've made with a woman I've had to live with, had the privilege of living with. Consistent, and kind and abiding in the things of God. Well, I believed it was God's will. I preached it. That afternoon, some things took place that destined that church to the greatest growth of any church I'll ever pastor. And it lasted for 14 years. Let me tell you about that. Men that were pillars in that church who had held a high standard of holiness anywhere around that territory at that time 
Godly men, praying men, proved it over and over again in the years that followed, got in their automobiles, went across the town, and I didn't know all the circumstances then. I didn't know who needed to go when I preached that sermon. But they went, and they went into the homes of people less of an age of what they were. And after pastoring it, years went by, I pastored that church for quite a little while. I would have had to conclude in retrospect that some of the best men, people in that church are the ones that got in their cars. But they went and they took the blame. I was amazed. They took the blame. And they prayed in homes that if they hadn't taken the blame, and I'm not sure they were to blame, but they just took it. That's like Jesus when he went to the cross. He just took our sins. He just took the blame. That's as, that's as godly as you can get when you just take the blame, just exactly what Jesus did for us. And they went and they just took the blame. And that night a revival broke, it out, broke out that lasted for 14 years. Now, I don't mean continuous in services, but I mean the growth of that church was continuous for 14 years. They never had, the voting was together. Oh, it didn't mean that everybody always agreed, but it meant that God put a canopy and spirit of revival on that thing that was productive for 14 years and moved it up to around 600 in attendance with the fire and the glory burning with never but a gain all along the line. What am I saying? I'm saying revival works when there are works of revival. And the works of revival are Christian attitudes of unity. Unity. Young, young people during the course of that time so full of God and the presence of uh, the, uh, the Spirit of God in their lives, though they were going, there were no Christian schools around, they were all public schools. Though they were in public school, they lived such a godly life that they had the respect of their teachers and they had the respect of the superintendents. Now, along the course of that time while the church was growing and glowing and God was blessing and revivals were coming, the principal of a high school, the local high school, and uh, the physical education teachers, or maybe it was just the physical education teachers, they decided that they were going to teach the social dance, uh, how to dance socially. Our young people were quick in a very, very confident manner uh, to tell them that, well, they couldn't do that. And uh, the uh, physical education instructors uh, told them that they'd lose their credit. They came to me and asked me about it, and I said, well, keep the good spirit, but just pray about it, and I'll talk to whoever I can. And so I counted the, I, I, I called the superintendent of city schools, Mr. Hartman, got an audience with him, told him the circumstances, told him that statistics had it that there are one out of three marriages at that time going on the rocks. And that we believe that the social dance was partly at fault because of the animosities and the jealousies that can arise out of lustful, lustful things taking place between men and women in the arms of someone other than their husband or wife. Mr. Hartman said, that makes sense, preacher, that some of those divorces are because of that. He called for the principal. 
principal came in and I had to tell him again, tell the story again. He said, well, that makes sense. He said, we're glad for your stand. He said, who are your young people? It's a large high school. And so, so I started to name the young people. He said, you have just named the cream of the crop of this high school. You see, these young people were not only consistent with a high standard, but they were consistent in their study habits. Not all of them were straight A's, though some of them were. But, some of, but they were all consistent young people. You see, godliness is more than loudness. We've got to have the proof in the pudding. And I knew that I was halfway home when he said that I just talked about the cream of the crop. He called, they called the physical instructors in. We told the story again. They concluded that they would not have to come to class in any day, and they would announce it ahead when they were going to teach the social dance, if they in fact did teach it now after these sessions we'd had, and that our young people could just, without any fanfare at all, just go on those days, those days to the study hall. And they just went to the study hall, because, and, and they just got smarter and smarter because they got to study more than the rest of them and they did not lose their credit. I only told you that story because of the fact that that was part of a genuine revival, and that genuine revival was because men, some of them older men, went in their automobiles across that town and were willing to humble themselves and take the blame. And until we get some people in our holiness movement today that are instead of being only willing to indict others and inflame and incite others willing to take some blame we're not going to have the wide revival that we really stand in need of but if we get that we're going to have revival and nothing can stop it nothing can stop it genuine revival thank God Revivals would come when one Wednesday evening, revival broke out, went for 16 nights with no announcement prior to that, and not a bear on the altar, and, score, and scores of people were swept in. One year between Christmas and New Year's, actually including Christmas and New Year's, Sunday was on Christmas and New Year's was, was, uh, was a Sunday as well. Sunday was, uh, uh, was a Christmas day, was the Christmas day. New Year's was, was, uh, was Sunday. And so... And so between their eight days, more than 150 people sought God at a week in the year when people would say, you can't even have revival. And they were swept in. The tide of revival. I say again, some men took the blame. Some godly men. They were the same men that were coming night after night when we'd have a service or two with nobody seeking God. They would appear at the, they would appear at the church without any announcements. They wouldn't even ask the pastor if he was going to show up. In fact, I didn't even know about it. Just would see from the parsonage the cars were stopping in front of the church and night after night they would pray Monday night and Tuesday night be there for the service on Wednesday night Thursday night and Friday night and Saturday night agonizing and praying and believing and revival would come revival would come thank God for revival but back to the premise of all this getting wrongs made right getting broken fellowships healed. Do you know of anybody that you are a little out of sorts with? Or do you know of anybody that's out of sorts for you, with you? Whether it's your fault or not, the Lord tells you to be the one to initiate the action. Let me say here, lest I forget it later, and I'll not be too long tonight, but, but let me say it here that 
If someone will not accept your apology and your honest restitution, and you have honestly made your a supreme effort of with lo, saturated with love in making that restitution, you have done your dead level best in humility and kindness and with God's love in your heart and they will not accept it I don't want you to go under a cloud and say there's no hope for you I want you to realize that you have done before God what God expected you to do and God will bless you Take care of the little girl now because we're at a very, very, very crucial time in the message and I want the people to hear it very carefully. She's a precious little girl. She just needs lots of guidance. Aren't they precious? Little children are precious, but they need to be trained. They need to be trained. Little children do. All of our little ch children need to be trained, you know. God bless her little heart. Oh, she needs so much to be trained. And we ought to be thank God. If you've been trained up in the right way and your children, your parents were careful to train you in the right way, you ought to thank God for parents that did that for you. Yes, somehow or another, God wants to help, doesn't he? God will help. God will do something for us. When I was in that here, not more than 30 miles from here, where I taught what I was talking about when I started tonight, I preached on this same idea in the church that night when God gave me a message. I have three or four of the messages now. This is one of them that I haven't preached for quite a while on the same line. Because it seemed to me that God was telling me they need it everywhere you'll be going. They need it. At any rate, in one of the places, in that place, that night, there was a woman who had up till that night in the revival meeting been testifying, and in that service too as well, before I preached that night, she had given a short testimony that was snappy, and it told how God was blessing her. And I learned from her testimony that she'd been, she had uh, been saved for five years. And, uh, but when I preached on this, there came a cloud over her. And when she went out that night, she took me by the hand and said, Brother Humble, the sermon tonight just really got me. But she said, with the help of God, I'll have it worked out before tomorrow night. What an honest woman. Now, I didn't know what she was talking about, but the next night, if we thought she had testified the previous nights, that night she was full. And here's what she said. She said, last night's message hit me right between the eyes. She said, 20 years ago, my husband left me. We were living, I think it was 1,800 miles away, state of Colorado. She said, my in-laws lived there as well. My husband went, he never came back. I raised the children on up the rest of the time. I pretty well have had to go alone, alone with all of it. And she said, I held something in my heart against my in-laws for 
my husband's leaving, or at least not coming back. Now, she said, I got saved five years ago, and I really haven't thought about it since. I, haven't, I don't have anything against them, but she said last night's message pointed it out that I've never done anything about rectifying what I did have in my heart against them for 15 years. So she said, when I got home last night, I phoned on the phone to Colorado. And my mother-in-law, that I haven't seen for almost 20 years, answered the phone. And I'll use the name Mabel. That isn't her name. But she said, Mom, this is Mabel. Oh, Mabel. It's been so long. Yes, and I want to tell you something, Mom. Five years ago, Jesus Christ came into my life. And if I had known what I know now five years ago, if I had known what I should have done then, as I know it tonight, just learned it tonight, I would have called you sooner. But there's a, we're having revival at our church, and I just learned that I need to take care of things, even though it's in the past. And I carried something against you and Dad for 15 years about the ruin of my marriage. She said, I want you to forgive me for carrying that against you. Her mother-in-law broke down on the other end of the line and said, oh, Mabel, if you're so fortunate to be right with God and ready to die or to live, said, I wish you'd have your people Pray for Dad and I. We're on up in years, and we've been talking about it. We've never had God in our lives, and we're not ready to die. I tell you, that lady came back to the church thrilled, for at the very first time of making that restitution, she had two wonderful candidates to get saved at her praying. You can't get far many people saved around you unless you get everything right between you and your fellow man. Hard to get your children saved if they know you've got something against somebody else. In or out of the home. Anywhere. Oh, I've seen some strange things take place in the course of preaching on, on these, this subject from these several messages. I was in a camp meeting in, way down in southern Ohio a few years ago. And uh, when I concluded the message, a, a, a young Methodist pastor and his wife had come into the service that night and come right down, sat on the second seat in front of the pulpit stand. And just as soon as I concluded the message, I had the people to stand. And that young Methodist pastor's wife leaned up to her husband and whispered something to her husband. And I never saw a more shocked man in my life when he whispered, when she whispered in something in his ear. And he was stunned. He shook a little bit. And then, then he softened. And he whispered something in her ear and took her by the arm and led her to the altar. She prayed, and she prayed hard that night, and she got back to God, and then testified that what she had whispered in her husband's ear was that she had been unfaithful to him. And she asked his forgiveness, and asked him if he could find it in his heart to forgive her, to lead her to the altar, and pray with her, 
to get back to God. And all in those few instants, that I watched that husband in a state of shock. I saw him come to grips with it and take her by the arm and lead her to reconciliation with God. In that very same night, the city service director, who was a Baptist, happened to attend that holiness camp meeting. The city service director of that city. The, the president of the camp told me, who pastored in that city, told me the next night before the service started, night, uh, started the city service director heard you preach on restitution. And he went to our man as soon as the service was over and took him by the hand and he said, I'm sorry about what has happened. You'll be getting your money this week. And that money was nearly $2,000. It works, friends. It works among the Baptists and the Methodists and Pilgrim Holiness. When you let it work. I like Dr. Godby's story. I haven't looked at the watch yet. I haven't been preaching very long. It's just that I got started kind of late. Dr. Godby's story on this, is, I think it's in the book in case you want to look it up and see if I told it right. And I might not tell it exactly. I try to. My memory it sometimes fails me. It's in one of his little paperbacks. I better not give you the title of it. Just read them all and you'll be sure to get it. He said there was a man out in Texas, a big rancher. And that big rancher, that big rancher out there in Texas was about 60 miles from his home one day and he looked in at a ranch and he saw there was one of the best teams of mules that he had ever seen in his life. A span of mules that really was a team of mules. A matching team. He waited till under cover of night, slipped into the barn where they were placed for the night, put a halter on one of them, a bridle on the other, Road one led the other through the back roads and country. Took him a couple of days to make it, having to stay pretty much in the brush as he went. And then he worked those mules all summer and prided himself on how cheap he'd gotten him a team of mules. However, Dr. Godby said one of those old-fashioned Methodist camp meetings that had originated under Inskip and the others was it took place in that part of the country, not far from where that rancher lived. The rancher went all out to laugh at his neighbors and everybody else that went to the camp meeting and make fun of them. And one day he put that team of mules in at noon and said to his wife, I'm going to the camp meeting this afternoon and I'm going to Go down and have me some fun. I'm going to have a high old time of fun and poking fun at my neighbors who are getting religion at the camp meeting. And when he got on the campground, he got almost to the meeting house, not quite, and fell like he had been shot. He went out. So was the power of God on that old camp meeting. Now, they didn't call the emergency squad. Some of those ranchers came out, his neighbors, and scooped him up, got him in their arms, picked him up, took him in, and laid him down in front of the altar and let him sleep it off. 
while they went on with their meeting. And during the course of their meeting, he had a nightmare in his semi-conscious state. Maybe it was a night mule. What he saw when he was dreaming was he saw those two mules coming at him, at him with those flashing hoofs and, and the mouths almost, you know, the big teeth just ready to gnash him and stomp him with the hoofs. And when he came out of that stupor, he came out crying. I'll take them back. I'll take them back. I'll take them back. And he got right with God. The following day, very early in the morning, he rode one of those mules and led the other and started home with the mules. Two o'clock in the morning, he rode in to a ranch where the mules, had, from where they'd come, knocked at the door, got the rancher up. When the rancher opened the door, he said, I've brought your mules home. The rancher was so overwhelmed because he had, he had, he had, he had really felt the absence of those mules and the heavy work of the summer. And he was so glad to get them. He said, I don't know where you found them, but I'm so glad you've brought them. I'm going to reward you for, what, for bringing them. And he said, the devil slipped right up here on his shoulder and said, look, said, you don't have to make restitution. He thinks you found them. He's going to reward you. But when he stepped inside that room, he said, look, sir, I didn't find your mules. I stole your mules, and I've worked them all summer, and I'm here to make pay up. Said that man looked at him and said, don't you know I can put you in the penitentiary? He said, yes, sir, I came fully aware of that. But I'd rather go to the penitentiary than I would go to hell. But if I can make restitution, I'll pay you for the work of all the summer. And I'll pay you whatever you say. Said that rancher looked at him and said, you sit down there at that table. And he began to fix a meal for he could see he was pretty well drug out from his long trip and fixed a meal for him. And during the course of eating with him, said, look, sir, if there's such a thing as that going on in your part of the country, like you've just described, the camp meeting, told about his conversion, told about what happened to him, what had caused him to bring back the mule, he said, I need the same thing. And they rode both of those mules back. And that rancher got to God. Works, friends. It really works, friends. It'll work, friends. It's going to work things out in your lives. It's going to work things out. If you take the initiative, don't expect somebody else to take it. You take it. Jesus said for you to do it. Please do it. And include in there restitution for all that over the backyard fence of discussing somebody when they weren't present. That if they had been present, you wouldn't have done it for anything in this world. For the unkind remarks that you made over the backyard fence or over the telephone. Whenever we get these restitutions made for all the unkind, caustic, ungrateful, mercy-forgetting, grace-forgetting attitudes, we're going to have revival. You say, we've been having revival. We've been in the camp meeting tide. You just can't tell. You want revival out in your local churches. Thank God for what's happened here. 
But if you want revival out in the local church, it's going to have to be on this sort. In fact, going to have to be on this sort right here during camp meeting. Have the kind that we need. Somebody said, well, I did it, but I did it for a good cause. God never stoops to anything underhanded to work out his will. Never. If it took a wrong action or attitude to work it out, it wasn't worth working out, and God wasn't in it. God never stoops. I like what the preacher said today said when he was talking about digging those churches out and getting people out of the raw. Remember? said it had been his policy to do that. You don't really have a revival until you get them out of the raw. Get them out of the raw. Don't just try to get them from somebody. Don't try to get them from the Bible Methodist. Don't try to get them from the Bible Missionary. Don't try to get them from somebody else. Get them out of the raw. Sheep stealing has to be made restitution for. That's why the preacher said he got him out of the raw. He didn't want to have to make restitutions for sheep stealing. Getting awful quiet in here. Sometimes in my audiences when it gets this quiet, I get a little scared. I get a little afraid. Afraid that the truth is sunk in to where it ought to go. Amen. One fellow didn't go and get in his car and go. He sat in the same amen corner with those men that went in the, across the city. But he didn't go. He was one of the most devout men of our church. But he didn't go and take the blame. And when he heard what the others have done, something rose up in him. And he said, not on your life. We were right and we should have stood our ground. That's what he said about the others going. He said, I won't go. If you're in the right, you don't go and take any blame for anything. Jesus was in the right, but he took the blame for all of us. The whole mess of us. He just took it all on himself. I saw in all the course of those years of genuine revival in that church, when we get in a red-hot revival, I've seen it. I can still see it in my mind. That man's been in eternity now for a long time, for he was up in years then, and that was a long time ago. He'd get up out of the amen corner and come down off of the platform and go around that end of the altar and kneel right about over there. And he'd try to pray around what he'd said. He tried to pray around his attitude. He tried to pray over it. He tried to pray through it. But he never did get the victory. And he became senile. And the last of that man in this life was that when he would go to bed at night, he'd take every sharp knife he could find in the house and lay it beside him because he thought that everybody was his enemy. And he was there to you say he was senile. That's true. But he went into that state of senility. He went into the hardening of the arteries when he once had a clear mind and he wouldn't come clean at the place where others had been willing to take the lowly route and it had produced revival and the revival never affected him. It never got to him. Oh, God help us. 
What is it that the Holy Ghost has brought to your attention tonight? Either in reference to something you have done or in reference to somebody else that you know is a, is, has, has done something toward you, but you've been a little slow on forgiving. They haven't forgiven because they haven't asked. Maybe you'd find it difficult to do it even if they did ask. What is it the Holy Ghost has brought to you? If thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest, leave your gift at the altar. You know, friends, here's what I'm going to ask us to do in the closing moments of this sermon and also invitation. I want everybody in this audience that has felt the Holy Spirit since the Holy Ghost has spoken to you of a need of any sort, whether it to be saved, whether it to be sanctified, whether to get carnality out of your heart, or you may be sanctified, but he has spoken to you of a restitution or of a letting somebody know that has sinned against you that they are truly forgiven, whether they ask or don't ask. You'll initiate the action. Your children, your brother, your sister, some church member that used to go to your church, maybe doesn't anymore or still does. Are you still listening? I'd like for you to bring your gift to the altar. And in the case of those that are unsaved, you can just pray right through. Those that are unsanctified, unless God has put it on your heart to get that taken care of before, that's what he did to me. But you do it according to the way God tells you. I can't, I can't put the blame my pattern on you. But I am going to ask you to bring your gift to the altar. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to bring it. What you do with it is up between you and the Lord. But I'm going to ask you to bring it here. Now, if you're not big enough and you're not brave enough, though God has spoken to you about this, to do it, not to bring it up here, maybe, maybe you can get it worked out. But if you want to do it the scriptural route, why not just bring it to the altar and kneel for a little bit, get it, get it settled with the Lord, and then go and have the strength, ask the Lord for the strength to go and do it. You see, you may decide to do it tonight, but tomorrow you may cool out on it. You may get cold feet. Well, let's just do it the scripture out. Let's just bring it to the altar. Throw caution to the wind. Well, somebody say, well, what will people think of me? What matters? It'd be better to get it settled in this world and have it come up at the judgment. It'd be better to get it settled now than have it come up in another world. It'd be a thousand times better, and they won't need to think anything anyhow. They don't know who's to blame. They don't know what the circumstances are unless you tell them. Maybe it's the other person that has sinned. But you bring it here and ask the Lord to help you to go in the spirit of Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ who hung on the cross, and forgive. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com.
This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose this.